are so glad to be with you today, and we're excited about sharing a bit of our ministry, but also just preaching uh, the scriptures this morning and just lifting up the gospel. Um, I, was, uh, I lead, along with Stephen, Dr. Stephen Boyce, a ministry called Explore Christianity. We're going to have a question and answer time, so in that time, I'm going to give a little bit more of kind of what we do, what we're seeking to do in the future, but just for time's sake, we're just going to jump right into scripture. So I want to invite you to take your Bible, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3, and um, I've been assigned with the topic, the gospel defended, and if you know 1 Peter, and if you have any like understanding or have done any reading in apologetics, you probably already know what passage I'm going to, probably know what verse, you probably even know the phrase. As a phrase that goes something like, depending on your translation, is something along the lines of be prepared to make a defense. It's a call to every believer to actually be prepared to defend the gospel. Not just, you know, these uh, well-educated philosophers or just Christian theologians and pastors, but all Christians are called to be a part of this activity of making a defense. So I want to zero in on this particular admonition. But before I do, I just want to say that this, this isn't the only place in the Bible where we're instructed to give a defense. Like for instance, Jude, uh, the first chapter, verse three, it says that we should earnestly contend for the faith. But what makes First Peter, I just think, unique is that it actually, the word defense is the word apologia, and it's where we get our word apologetics. So when I say, if I use the word apologia, apologetics, or I talk about a defense, I'm talking about the same thing. Apologetics is defending the Christian faith, and so that's really what we're giving our attention to. But what happens often in a subject like this, when you read 1 Peter 3 and it tells us that we should be ready to give an answer, a lot of times the sermon or the teaching kind of lists this phrase out of its context and just talks about, okay, this is what the answer should look like. Now we're going to do some of that tonight, or tonight, <laughs> you can tell I'm, I need some more coffee this morning. Um, we're going to do some of that this morning. However, what I want to do is I want us to see the fullness of this directive in its context. And if we can see in its context, I think we'll begin to see what it looks like to be a people that embody this apologetic as well as articulate it. So let's read the text in fullness. Now, I had a PowerPoint plan and it's just not working, so you'll have to follow along in the scriptures. That won't hurt you, I don't think. So 1 Peter 3, we're gonna look at verse 13. It says... Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you of a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect." having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. But it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I wanna pause and just ask God to bless our time in the word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would do what I cannot do. I pray that you would just open our eyes in a fresh way to this text. Lord, we don't want this to be just information. 
We want to be transformed by the gospel. I pray that you would lead us in this room to see the need for this defense for the apologetic, but that we would also be just our affections be stirred to have a hunger to know and to learn and be able to articulate the gospel in a world that desperately needs it. So God, I pray you would help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a phrase going around a few years ago that went something like this. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. How many have heard that statement? Now, this provocative statement is designed to focus on living out the gospel in culture, okay? And surely, if we open up the New Testament, we find phrases that that encourage us to live and step with the gospel, to live out the implications of the gospel. For instance, Philippians 1, 27 says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In Titus chapter two, at the beginning, it says this, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Then Titus begins, or, uh, begins to list out um, all of the ethics that Christians should have. And at the end of chapter 10, or chapter two, verse 10, it says, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our savior. The word adorn means to make, beautiful. So here's another passage, and there's a litany of them that tell us, tells us to stay in step with the gospel, adorn the gospel, make it beautiful in the way that you live, that you would live in, in step with that gospel. Now, this statement is good, but in some ways it's problematic because it elevates one aspect of our missionary endeavor, living the gospel, to strongly diminishing another, namely boldly proclaiming the gospel. And um, what you'll find in scripture is that we actually need both of them. It's not one or the other. It's not a preach the word at all times. It, if necessary, use words. It's rather preach the gospel at all times in word and in deed, both are necessary. But what happens is we recover one aspect of a missionary endeavor, maybe one that we haven't really heard. If you grew up in an IFB culture, you heard a lot like, let's go soul winning, let's preach the gospel, let's preach it, let's preach it. And maybe not as much, let's embody it, right? So when you hear that, you're like, oh my goodness, we need to focus on this, not this. And the pendulum kind, kind of swings one direction. But if you open up the book of Acts, do you find them going to a city, sitting there and saying, man, I hope they notice us as we embody the gospel. I mean, my marriage is on point. I hope they, they, they see me, please ask me a question, and then they finally ask you a question so you can give the gospel. No, we should be an active place in culture. And they would go to a city, and they would immediately begin to find opportunities to share Jesus with other people. But they didn't just share Jesus, did they? They embodied the gospel, which made it powerful, the combination of the two. Now, the same thing happens with the topic of apologetics. I've actually heard uh, pastors even say, we don't need apologetics. We don't need to defend the gospel. We only need to proclaim the gospel and let the spirit work. Now, that sounds very spiritual. It sounds spiritual. They even quote Spurgeon. Now, now you really know you got it. You got a good point if you can quote Spurgeon, okay? And uh, Spurgeon gave an analogy of like, hey, how do you defend a caged lion? Well, you just let them out of the cage. Well, how do you defend the gospel? Just let the gospel out. And Spurgeon said this in a sermon, and I quote, the best apology for the gospel is the gospel itself, end quote. 
And then they'll say, see, even Spurgeon said that we don't need apologetics, we just need gospel proclamation. But hey, in that same sermon, actually you find Spurgeon saying apologetics is good. You gotta read the sermon in its fullness. This is what Spurgeon said, and I quote, a great many learned men are defending the gospel, no doubt in a very, it's no doubt a very proper and right thing to do, in quotes. So Spurgeon says, this is right, this is appropriate, but then he goes on to say, don't be preoccupied with apologetics where you don't proclaim the gospel. You see what he's doing? In his day, he was trying to save the pendulum from swinging to solely apologetics, no proclamation. Now today it's like, hey, live the gospel, we're, we're starting to get back at preaching the gospel, but we're a little bit skeptical of defending the gospel and maybe because we've seen it done in a poor way. But I wanna to submit to you that if we're going to have a full, robust in, uh, missionary endeavor, we need all three of these components, at least. We need to be living out the gospel. We need to be proclaiming the gospel and we need to make a defense for the gospel in our day. These are all vital. As a matter of fact, in our text, you're going to find all three of these components converge in this text. This text is not just about apologetics, just by word. It is about the evangel, the gospel. It is about living out the gospel. You'll find all three of these. Now, the first thing that I want you to notice in the text um, actually, before we do that, I'm gonna, let me just give you a little bit, if you like to take notes. I'm going to give you two points, and we'll be done. The first thing I want you to notice is that there, Peter gives us a precondition for this defense. And then number two, you're going to see Peter give us the practice for this defense. So you got the preconditions, and then number two, the practice. Let's look first off at this precondition. The first thing I want you to notice in the text is that the phrase, be prepared to give a defense, is in the middle of a thought. In other words, it's not really a standalone command. It's flowing from a thought that's already been established at the beginning of th verse 13, and it runs all the way to verse 17. What is the thought of 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17? Let me just tell you, it's not primarily about apologetics. The primary thought in 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17 is how to suffer. And there's two points that Peter's going to try to relate. Number one, if you suffer, suffer for good, not evil. That's what he hits at the beginning. Number two, if you suffer for good, this is how you do it. And then he says that if you respond in this fashion, you'll have a good conscience. Why will you have a good conscience? Because you've honored God and you've magnified your witness. That's the desired end. But it's in this section where he's talking about, hey, if you suffer for good, this is how you do it. That's the section that we have, be prepared to give an answer. So that helps us kind of frame the nature of this apologia or apologetics. Prior to him making this statement, be prepared to give an answer, he gives us this statement. Look at verse 14. It's right in the middle. This is the precondition. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, this phrase, the first part of it, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, is a general command that's calling us to, to not be unsettled. Do you see that? And they were facing suffering, they were facing persecution, they were being slandered as Christians, and Peter says, hey, the precondition for you to give an answer, be prepared to give this apologia, is first do this. I want you to be unsettled, or not to be unsettled. I want you to be non 
anxious. I don't want you to be fearful. That's what he, what he goes on to say. And then he gives us the flip side of it. Notice he says, don't be unsettled, rather, catch the phrase, but in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, I much prefer the New American Standard here, and I'm going to quote it. The New American Standard says this, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So it's a very succinct way of putting it. So don't be unsettled, rather sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. So this is saying, allow the doctrine of Christ's lordship. Remember the gospel itself, right? The gospel is Jesus died, he was buried, and he resurrected, but it doesn't stop there. He also ascended and now he's enthroned. And if you go through the book of Acts, you're going to find, they're not going to just stop at resurrection. They're going to say, this one who is resurrected is enthroned. And that's the basis for saying, hey, you need to repent and believe. He's alive. He's reigning. He's extending his reign and he's making all things new. Okay. That's the basis of, of this gospel and what he's trying to proclaim. And he's taken the doctrine of the Lordship of Jesus. And he's saying, hey, allow the gospel, particularly Christ is Lord to change the way you act, to change the way you live. Now, this is an encapsulation, or you could say a particular application of what he's been covering for the entire book. This is just like a snapshot, an encapsulation of everything he's covered. Now, in order to show you this, um, this is a conference, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stretch you with some just Bible content and teaching. So I know it's Saturday morning. So you guys are doing great, by the way. You guys look like you're really glued in. Even you got toothpicks in there. You're doing, you're doing awesome, okay? Um, I want to go back, and I want to show you how this, how Peter is doing this to make this really powerful and make it really hit us hard. When you go back to the first chapter of chapter 1, verse 1, Peter identifies his audience in a particular way. You know how he does that? He calls them elect what? Elect exiles. Now, I love the scripture here because when he calls them exiles, is that a good thing, a good position to be in or a bad position? It's actually really bad. You know what Christianity does? It doesn't lead you into a sort of blind optimism. It doesn't just say, hey, you know, it actually really isn't that bad. No, the scripture says, actually, you are really in a bad space. Being in exile means you're estranged from your homeland and you have no rights and no privileges. That's a bad thing. That is not a good thing. You have reasons to grieve about the condition that you're in. Yet, he gives something, another truth. It's like a way to describe their exile. He says, you are an elect exile. So in relation to the world, you're an exile. But in relation to God, you're elect. Now, this doctrine of election is designed not to say, hey, your bad's not really bad. It's designed to say, no matter how bad it is, there's something that's good that transcends the bad. And it's going to shape the way they see everything. And he's going to say, hey, this election involves the whole Godhead. And notice how he says this. He says in the text, your elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctification of the spirit, and also through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a lot of theology there that we can unpack, but here's what you, he wants you to get. The entire Godhead is involved in this, and it's designed to lead these believers up to this place where like, yes, I am in exile, but there's something bigger on in front of me. It's what, what the Bible calls here living hope. 
And he's gonna say, because you have a God and you are his possession, you have living hope. And now from verses three to verse 12, and I love this about Peter, verses three to 12 is one sentence. Did you see that in your scriptures? Verses three to 12, it's one Greek sentence. This is really, an English teacher would freak out. Okay, it's a really long sentence. And you know what he's trying to do? He's trying to get them to focus on this particular aspect of them being the elect of God and all that it entails. Now notice the text. Um, and this is what he's gonna do. He's gonna take gospel hope and he's gonna take a look at the past. He's gonna take a look at the future and he's gonna take a look at their present. First, he's gonna look at the past. Look what it says. He says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He points to the past and says, hey, the resurrection, that event, it changed everything. Your great sin was met with his great mercy and you have become a part of that hope. You are born again. You have been made alive. You have a restart because of Jesus. So no matter what you face, you can look to the past and say, my past has been redeemed. That's what he's saying in verse three. Then he takes a look at the future. Look what it says. Well, I actually won't totally read it entirely, but he says, to an inheritance. And that inheritance, what he, want, he wants you to see is this. First, it's kept in heaven for you. In other words, you're not going to lose it. They lost a lot of things by being exiles, but being the, uh, the elect chosen of God, they have an inheritance that cannot be taken away from them. And get this, it's not only kept for them, verse five says they are kept to the inheritance. You are utterly secure is what he's saying. So your past is redeemed, your future is fixed. You see that? Hey, if we can look at all of life's struggles and suffering and we say, yes, it really is bad and I have reasons to grieve, but I also have reasons to rejoice. My past is redeemed and that will not change. The blood of Jesus Christ wiped it out, right? But also I can point to the future and say, no matter what comes in front of me, I am destined for glory because of Jesus. That's good news. But then he says, hey, I'm not finished. Blessed hope changes your present as well. In the text, he says, though you are facing these difficulties, the fire of your trials is just testing and refining your faith. And it's gonna be found in the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus. Basically, it's kind of reminiscent of James 1. Do you know James 1? James 1 says, hey, my brothers count it all joy when you fall into these diverse trials because the trying your faith works what? It works patience, endurance. In other words, God's, God allows these trials as tools to mature you. So no matter what you're going through, you win. God doesn't fail. Amen. This is the good news of Jesus. And he just says, hey, I know you're in a bad place, you're exiles, but you are elect exiles. And let me just unpack this. And then notice what happens next. From verses eight, and um, or excuse me, it's actually starting in verse six. Down to verse number eight, you see a series of words. It's actually the word though. You'll see the word though appear four times. You might want to note that. He's going to contrast living hope with their current condition. And he's going to say, hey, in this you greatly rejoice, that this is referring to living hope. And he says, though you're in heaviness through manifold trials. And then he's going to say, 
Hey, though you're, in, you're, you're being tried by this fire, he goes on to say, this is going to be found in the praise, honor, and glory of, of Jesus. Notice verse number seven, it says, or verse number eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now, did you catch this? You are in heaviness, you're suffering, it's difficult. But what is your response? It's one of joy, it's one of affection, it's one of faith, and it's all filled with a joy that you cannot even express, and it's filled with glory. Do you know what Peter's describing? Now catch this. He is describing wholeness. He is describing holiness that comes about when we have a believing response in the gospel. Get this, when you and I are going through something really difficult and complex, and yes, we grieve over it, but we get the gospel in front of us and say, hey, my past is redeemed, my future is fixed, and my present has a purpose. God is doing something, and I can look at that bad through that lens. You know what it does in my heart? I still have grief, but I also have joy. I still long for Jesus, but oh, my affections for him is stirred. Again, I want to be with him and I believe in him. So I have this fervency of faith and it, there's a joy that's inexpressible. This is just, this is, a, you can almost say it this way. This is obtaining the reality of gospel hope right now. This is internalizing gospel hope right now. And that's what he means by the end of verse nine. Would you look at it? It says this obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, if you pick up a commentary on this, there is some d disagreement on what this verse means. But basically, some people will say, this is talking about obtaining the, the, the total end of your faith, like glorification, being in heaven, the salvation of your souls. But I don't think that's what it's talking about here. And I'll tell you why. All the verbs here are actually present verbs. It's like present tense verbs. You are loving him, you are believing in him, um, you are rejoicing in him. Why? Because you're present actively obtaining the telos, that's the, the, the purposeful end, the telos of your faith, what is it? The salvation of your soul. The word soul is the word psyche, or suke, it's where we get our word psyche or psychology. And he's basically saying this, hey, when you internalize gospel hope, it changes your psychological faculties. You are able now to endure things that someone that doesn't know the gospel cannot endure, at least at the same level. This is revolutionary. That's what he's saying in this text. And so he's just reveling in gospel hope and saying, hey, if you internalize it, this is what it looks like. It's wholeness, it's holiness. Isn't it beautiful? I, th I think it's absolutely beautiful. But then notice, uh, and then you go into verses 10 through 12, and he talks about the Old Testament saints, and they're looking into, because in the Old Covenant, there wasn't the reality of the outpouring of the Spirit, right? So they looked forward, they were writing about this, and like, oh man, I wish I could see this. And then it also says that angels are present actively looking into this. Right now, they're like, this gospel hope is awesome. It is amazing how transforming it is for people that are facing really bleak circumstances, yet they're able to show forth this beauty, this wholeness. How do, where do you find this wholeness? Where do you find this holiness? This is just beautiful. Now, notice what Peter does. 
in chapter one, verse 13, he's gonna change gears. He's gonna go from explanation to application, okay? Look at verse 13 in the text. It says this. Therefore, okay, Bible nerds, when you see the word therefore, you know, you're like, okay, application, here it comes. He says, therefore, prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded. Now catch the command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought up to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, you know what I just talked about, what I just explained? You be that person. You set your hope on Jesus. And then notice the next command that follows. The command that follows is to be holy. Now, what's fascinating is that the word, the set your hope is an active verb, but be holy is actually a passive verb. The one leads to the other. So if you set your hope on Jesus fully, guess what is the byproduct of it? A beautiful holiness that works out. And for the next couple of chapters, Peter is going to delineate what that holiness looks like in different contexts. Like in in chapter two, verse one, he's going to say, hey, put away malice, put away all these type of things and grow up into your salvation. He's going to begin to unpack more what it means to be God's chosen people. You are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation, so on and so forth, that you would show forth the praise of him who've called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And he's going to just unpack what this holiness looks like. You know what it looks like? It looks very much like people who are non-anxious and they live as free people. They're actually, some of them are slaves to people that were really harsh And he says, hey, just uh, treat them with respect and dignity, but live as a free person. You know what what he's saying? He's applying gospel hope to their current slavery. He's not condoning slavery. He's just simply saying, if you're in this condition, you can live out gospel hope. And he just begins to unpack. This is what holiness looks like here. This is what holiness looks like here. This is what holiness looks like here. And when he gets to chapter three in our text, Here he comes to the body collectively and he's saying, hey, when all of you are being slandered, let me tell you what this looks like, gospel hope looks like lived out. Stop freaking out. When we get on Facebook, do we see Christians possessing a non-anxious presence? How are we reaching our world? Just one panic scene to the next. You know, I talk to a lot of non-Christians and sometimes I kind of get it. Like I get why they don't want to hear the gospel because the people that represent the good news aren't really that good. Matter of fact, sometimes you can find people that seem to be a little bit more reasonable and non-anxious in a non-Christian context because Christians don't seem to be able to get along. Now, we're at a recovering fundamentalist conference. We've all been in these type of contexts, right? If we're not careful, we can become the very thing we hate. We can become the very non-anxious presence. We're in a constant state of like recovering. And I know I can say this. This is the heartbeat of this organization. We don't want to stay in that spot. We want to get to a place where we are grounded in the gospel so much that no matter what comes, even the fundamentalists who will spread your name and smear it all over the internet, you're saying, you know what? I don't have to have an anxious presence. I, I can be settled I can be convinced of God's sovereignty. And that's exactly 
what this text is saying. And so notice, he says, don't do this, but rather set apart, sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. So early in the text, in the beginning of the book, he says, internalizing gospel hope produces holiness. Did you see that when we went through? Here he's saying, internalizing Christ is Lord. That's gospel hope. Internalizing Christ as Lord produces confidence. Do you see that? It's, it's a, like a particular application. And when you can see it in the whole book, he's been building this. He's saying, okay, I want you to get shaped and driven by the gospel. And if you allow it to drive you, it totally transforms you to where you're like, hey, I don't have to respond like I used to. I don't have to be fearful. I can trust in him. I can depend on him. And this is what the ancients called embodied apologetics. Because notice, this is the precondition before you give an answer. You know, it's really hard to defend something that we don't know and don't embody ourselves, right? And so prior to making a case for Christ through articulation, we are to make a case for Christ through demonstration. That's the text. And so that is the precondition. I was reading this story. It's a fascinating story. It's A.N. Wilson, graduate from Ox Oxford in the early 1970s, and considered into going into Anglican ministry. And by the 1980s, he lost his faith entirely. Called himself an atheist, he wrote a short book called Against Religion, Why We Should Try to Live Without It. He became an award-winner biographical author and scholar. He met up with his old colleagues, uh, Richard, Richard Dawkins, do you know his name? And also Christopher Hitchens. These are two of the most proponent new atheists a few years ago. And they were glad that he possessed his non-belief. And so Hitchens said, so absolutely no belief in God, right? Wilson responded confidently, nope. But what happened years later startled everyone. He announced his return to faith in God by writing two articles. He wrote an article in the British magazine of the New Statesman and in the Daily Mail. And you may ask, what led him to belief? Now, like anybody who's converted or you could say in a sense reconverted in a way, um, it's usually a cumulative case of things. It's not just one thing, it's a cumulative case. But he said something in the Statesman that it's got to capture your attention. Notice what he says. He says, my belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, not, my, uh, not, not the famous, not saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in light of the resurrection story and in quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. Do you see the number one compelling reason why he went from atheism to theism, Christian theism? It's because he saw an embodied apologetic. Did you catch that? Now he goes on to talk about the rationality of Christianity and the lack of explanatory power in material atheism. But according to his own testimony, it was Christian living in light of the gospel hope that was the catalyst for his conversion. So number one, we see this precondition. Number two, I want us to notice the practice of apologetics. Now in our text, um, take a deep breath, 
We got through the first point, and we're going to the second point, okay? Um, the second point here, the price of apologetics. Um, I want you to notice in the text that first, he gives us this directive, be prepared to give an answer or a defense. And then he gives us the manner in which we give that answer, right? Yet in gentleness and respect, but he does not give us the method. Did you notice that? There's nothing in the text that says, this is how you build an apologetic, these are the right ways. This is how you build a case. As a matter of fact, if you go through the New Testament, actually the entire Bible, you will not find one passage that formally teaches us how we are to go about building that case. But the word itself does give us some insight. The word apologia is actually like in, you could say, um, in a consolation of Greek words. It's kind of like a semantic domain of words um, that help give us insight. Now, you know, you guys know the word justification? It's a legal term. And justification, in order to justify something, you need something. You need either the grounds or the defense for that justification. If there's no grounds and no defense, you, you can't justify something or someone. You need the right grounds. The word apologia is the technical word for defense. So it's what precedes in a courtroom when someone becomes justified, what preceded that was the apologia. It was someone that says, let me build the case for this person to be declared innocent. So you could say it in this way, it's setting the record straight. Lexan Research Commentary said that apologia is the articulation and clarification of one's belief and actions in response to the articulations and the objections that people have. Now, I said there's no formal teaching, but there's plenty of examples in our Bible of apologetics. My favorite is in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches at Pentecost, you might have thought of that as a gospel proclamation, but actually, it's very much a, an apologetic. It's actually primarily an apologetic. Why? Because they got up, there were people who, after they saw the outpouring of the Spirit and they heard everyone speaking in their own dialect, they began to to come up with an explanation of why is this the case? They were amazed. But there were some people that mocked saying, they are filled with new wine. Now Peter stood up to preach at Pentecost to actually make a case that that's not the reality. Let me tell you what really happened. He's giving an apologetic in nature. He says this, he says, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this, it was uttered through the prophet Joel. And he gives a great quote of the outpouring of the spirit in Joel chapter two. And then um, after he gives that, outpour, uh, that passage about the outpouring, he begins to tie this plan of God to Jesus of Nazareth. It said, God predetermined that he would be delivered up, crucified, but God raised him up. And because he starts to talk about the resurrection, he gives scriptural support for that resurrection. He goes to Psalm 16 and he quotes this passage. You probably know it. It says, for you will not abandon my soul in Hades or will let the Holy One see corruption. Now, right now, Peter anticipates an objection. Do you know what the objection will be? When he quotes Psalm 16 and he says, this is about Jesus, people are going to say, no, 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 that's not about Jesus, that's about David. Peter, anticipating, so being a good apologist, anticipating this objection, he says, men, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both 
died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And he goes on to say, for he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And then he begins to, to point to the lordship of Jesus being enthroned. And he quotes Psalm 110 about my Lord said to, to my Lord, sit here until I make your enemies my footstool. He quotes that passage. And then he makes this drawing conclusion. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now that is a masterful apologetic. But I want to point out something to you. When he gave his apologetic, he was answering a particular objection and there was a particular audience that he had in front of him. The objection and the audience dictated his apologetic. Are you with me? Now, what you're going to see, and I'm going to have to be a little bit briefer on this just because of my, our time together. But what you're going to see as you see apologetics develop through scripture and in church history, um, not all apologetics are the same. And what can happen when we begin to talk about apologetics? People can always be talking about, oh, it has to look like this, or you should start here. No, the Bible started with the objection and led that person where they were at and built a case for Jesus. Sometimes what we do is we, we say, man, I want to be an apologist. So we pick up a big textbook on apologetics. Like it's like 800 pages. And they're like, here's all the philosophical arguments. You're like, what is, like, what is an ontological argument? I mean, what is this cosmological argument, ontological argument? Have you, have you ever heard that? How many of you have heard the argument like, I don't even know what that is? That doesn't make sense to me, okay? Yeah, and that's what we think of apologetics. Now, I think there's a place for that. I think in academia, we need some high-level people to be able to articulate arguments that are difficult. But can I say this most of the time? It's these little objections that you can, you can start with people and all you have to do is say, hey, how can I build a case for Jesus? And remember, Peter says, you are actually giving a case for the hope that's where? In you, right? Listen, guys, you don't have to be a scientist. You don't have to be this great philosopher. That, that's at the point. Now, hey, listen, I have some science friends that I call Sometimes I'm like, hey, I got this question. I don't have a good answer for it. I, I need some help. Or I call a philosopher who's very good at forming syllogisms and arguments of that nature. That's great. But you know what we need as Christians fundamentally? If we're defending the faith, we need to know the faith really well. And be able to say, Peter, wasn't it masterful? He, he knew the Old Testament well enough that he could ground what was happening and says, this is the case. And it was powerful. Many people came to, to faith. There was the evangel, the gospel, and the apologia weaved together in a powerful way. We don't put away the gospel to do our apologetic stuff. No, we keep the, the evangel sword, the evangel, couldn't get it out there, sword out, the gospel, and weave it together with the apologetics. And it's very powerful. You can do this. Matter of fact, in Acts chapter 22, Paul gives an apologia. And he says, here's my defense. Here's my apologia. You know what it was? It was his testimony, how he came to Christ. He built his case solely on, this is what Jesus did for me. You know, that's a great place to start. Start with the testimony, know the scriptures, and just say, how can I build a case? When you go through church history, you do see the apologetic change. Why? Different objection, different audience. In the patristic era, 
you had uh, Irenaeus. Have you heard that name? Church, early church father. There was um, a full-born Gnosticism that was attacking the church. And he developed an apologetic that was a uh, attacked Gnosticism's internal coherence and historical roots, along with a lucid account of the core Christian beliefs. It was a, it was a powerful apologetic. You have... Um, Anthagoras in Athens, he built an apologetic about um, how Christian monotheism in, it was better and to be preferred to pagan polytheism. So when the gospel was in Jerusalem, the apologetic was primarily like, let's look at the Old Testament and let me show you Jesus. When they moved out into the Roman Empire, now they're in a polytheistic culture, okay? So the objections were different. The audience were different. When you find Peter in Acts 2 and you find uh, Paul in Acts 17, totally different messages, right? But they've learned to build a case for Jesus. You can think about Augustine. He built, um, he built a case against an accusation towards the church. And he didn't just build a apologetic for the Christian faith. He, de he developed what's called a polemic which is a critique of the dominant culture's belief. And he showed how they failed to measure up to their own standards and their own aspirations. When you get to the medieval era, you begin to see this intensification of trying to ground belief and showing that it's actually rationally um, um, credible to believe the gospel. And one of the most famous apologists in this time was Thomas Aquinas. Have you heard his name? Thomas Aquinas argued that all truth is God's truth. He actually borrowed that from Augustine. But then he said, there really isn't a discrepancy between science and faith or religion and reason. There is no discrepancy. Now, in that day, people were like this. This is what the religious people in that day did. They're like, you know, we don't have to reconcile these. We got religious truth and then we got philosophy and science truth. We're happy with that. And Thomas Aquinas was like, no, I'm not happy with that. No, that doesn't work. If, Jesus, if, if our God is the author of revelation and creation, we shouldn't seek, see them separate. He said, we should see the unity of these two. And see, so if there isn't unity, you either got bad religion or bad science. We need to reconcile this. And that, that was a great advancement to the apologetic conversation. Um, during this time in the medieval period, you had the rise of Islam. And so Christianity began to, remember, now there was the objection. There's the audience. They began to build an apologetic there. John of Damascus formed the first apologetic towards that. You get to the modern era, and there was an increasing um, yeah, criteria for having reason and science for anything to be acceptable. This is particularly true in the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. So um, in this period, there was a heightened skepticism towards any received wisdom. So tradition and religion, everybody was pretty skeptical of these things. The European society was beginning to require all claims, including religious ones, to be scrutinized under the light of reason and science. Now, there were some Christians that did not like their traditions to be challenged. Now, I know that's hard for you guys to believe because you've never experienced traditions and them being challenged, right? I mean, for crying out loud, we're at a Recovering Photomos uh, conference, right? I always want to put podcasts in there. I don't know why. But um, yes, I mean, we've, we've seen that. They didn't like it. But in, in large, the church actually welcomed scrutiny. You know why? We believe fundamentally Jesus is the truth. And we're not afraid to run away from, we're not afraid of questions or scrutiny. We're not going to run away, I think is the slogan here, run away from a challenge or one, however you guys say that. But um, 
Christianity stood up and says, hey, we welcome the challenge. Matter of fact, if you go back to the medieval period, Thomas Aquinas was already saying, hey, we need to go this way. We need to have a rich faith that syncs with creation and science. We don't need to be afraid of any of these things, archeology, span history, science, any of these disciplines we don't need to be afraid of. So when we got to this era, Christians were already basically in preparation for that. It's not true across the board. But um, so the apologetic in that era was focused primarily on developing scientific and philosophical arguments. So that's like the cosmological argument and so forth. Building a case for the supernatural. Defending the veracity of scripture. This was some of the fundamental things that you find here. That was in the, the, the modern era. Now I want to pause here and just say this. When, when you're looking at different eras, different eras have isms. Did you notice that? In the patristic era, let me give you some isms. Gnosticism, Judaism, polytheism. So all the apologetics were designed and geared towards the isms, okay? When you fast forward to modern culture, um, what are some of the isms in modern culture? It was rationalism and skepticism. So all the apologetics were geared toward those isms. So we're in a different era today, right? We're not in a modern culture, we're in what's called, sociologists call, a post-modern culture. And so in order for us to articulate the gospel with clarity, um, it's good for us to say, what is the error and what are the what? The isms that are there, okay? And so in a post-Christian culture, I want to get into those isms, but first let me give you the fundamental difference between modern culture and post-modern culture. You know what it is? Post-modernity has this belief that there is no grand narrative. That is the fundamental. Everything else you see, you talk about relativism or you know, secular humanism at its finest or individualism. All of that is just coming from the fundamental belief that there is actually no narrative. There's no meta-narrative that we're searching for. Now, that wasn't true of any error prior. This is an entirely new phenomena. There has never been this. There's been pockets. There's been a few people that, has been a, that would espouse this idea. But generally speaking, even the modernist who says, hey, let's turn away from religion, tradition, and superstition to frame our world. Let's try to find the real meaning to world and our existence through science and reason. But this age says, listen, we've tried science and reason. There just isn't a grand narrative. Stop trying to pursue it. There is no grand narrative. There's no transcendent reality. There's no abstract truth. There's no ultimate meaning or purpose. Therefore, you are free to create your own meaning. Just smile. You're going to die. The universe is going to burn up and everything you do has no significance. But it's okay. Make your own meaning. Don't forget to smile. It's okay. That's what we're left with. So we have relativism, which says, since there is no ultimate narrative, there is no ultimate truth that's binding that we should search for. Um, so there's, there's, the, there's the, the undercurrent of relativism, secular humanism, aggressive individualism, that, by the way, is destroying our culture. Because when you focus on the individual above community, you have a bunch of narcissists. And it's destroying our culture. Actually, the sociologists and psychologists of our day are already seeing it. They're like, postmodern doesn't work. And so I'll be honest with you. 
when I, I went to Seattle as a church planner, and I went there, and I was like, I'm going to preach the gospel, and, and I'm going to be an apologist. And I, I got there, I was so overwhelmed. There were so many isms and different ideas and just bizarreness. I was disoriented. Have you been disoriented with our culture? It's very disorienting, but you know what they don't really have? They have a great Instagram, but they have no peace. There's really not a wholeness there. And we have an opportunity in the world that's crazy. We're the moral fabric. We can't even establish morality. Where all of that is spiraling out of control and people are saying, I'm looking for something secure. Maybe I'll find it by changing my identity again and again and again. And you know what they need? They need something that transcends their own inner, I'm going to label myself something. They need the truth that God has created them for a purpose. They need the gospel, right? And I think we're at a place where we could really help this people. So I want to give a couple things. This isn't scripture right here. I want to distinguish, but I want to give you a few little helps to building relationships to having this type of apologetics that has a post-Christian and post-modernity in mind. Here's a couple of things. First, you need to form deep relationships with people. If you go up, like, I, you guys probably know this, but if you go up and just say, hey, can I share Jesus with you? Are you finding that working very well? You know why? We're in a post-Christian culture. That means they already know the gospel and they probably know some of your arguments and they, they already have determined it doesn't work. So you coming up and sharing Jesus, you're just one of those weirdos that are out of touch with reality. It's time to move on, right? And um, so most people are just like, Nah, I don't want that. Even though they're broken, they don't want to go backward to the dinosaur age type of thing. So how do we overcome? Well, we say, well, let's invite a lot of people to church and get them in. They'll hear the preaching. More and more people in a post-Christian and a post-modernity culture, they're not coming to church. Now, in pockets of the world, they will. You're going to find some people that come to church, obviously. But as a whole, the evangelism that we used in a modern culture doesn't work. Do you see this? The church is still using uh, strategies and techniques that worked in a modern culture. The apologetics is typically geared towards the arguments that were in a modern culture. We're we're answering questions people aren't even asking. So what do we need to do? How do we know what the questions are? Through relationships. Get to know them. Don't make it a redemptive relationship. Make it a true relationship. They're not a means to an end. They're an image bearer of God that deserve your affection and love regardless of whether they believe your gospel. Form a deep relationship with them. Jesus, you follow his method of discipleship. And I love this phrase. It's actually a criticism, but it's, it's beautiful. He's, the, the text says that Jesus was a friend of sinners. For the son of man come eating and drinking and they criticized him. But he went from one meal to the next. He's like, hey, I'm going to your house. I'm going to your house. I'm going to spend time with you today. One table after another, just impacting people and expanding his kingdom. So form deep relationships. It wasn't, let me share you my presentation, but rather let's share life together. That's where you start. Number two, this is going to sound a little pushy, but stay with me. Question people's answers before answering people's questions. Say, what do you mean? People need to see that their worldview doesn't work before they're interested in yours. So if you could show them by, I don't mean like 
interrogate them. I'm just saying, ask them about their life. Ask them how they find satisfaction, meaning, justice, truth, how they, how they find any type of being able to settle their spirit in the midst of suffering. And if you ask questions like that and you're just genuinely being a friend, guess what's going to happen? Usually conversations are reciprocal in nature. And it's going to give you an opportunity as they share, like, what do you do? Well, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. And you begin, and maybe it feels a little bit weird, but you push through and you just share the living hope with them. Just, it might be a little bit. You might just talk about, you know, um, maybe you were really sick and you were facing death and somebody says, man, I just noticed that you were really poised. You're like, you know, outside of Jesus, I just don't know how I would be hopeful and secure. I'm just so thankful for Jesus. It's not like, and now pray this prayer and believe in Jesus, okay? Don't be so anxious. It's just like, we're just like, you know when a new person comes to your church sometimes, if it's a small church, everybody's like, oh, someone new, please come to my church. We love people. You know, it's like, okay, you're weird. Why is Christians so weird? We're just awkward and weird. We don't have conversation. We need to rediscover conversation, rediscover that relationship. This is what people crave. And they want to talk about the deeper things of life. They just don't know if they can trust you with it yet. And then number three, learn to communicate the gospel in ways that connect to people's deepest needs, desires, and address their apprehensions. Um, Tim Keller said this, and I like it. He says, when people put on post-modernity and like just post-modernism in general relativism, it's like putting on clothes that's too small. And as they walk around, they may feel like they look cool at first, but it begins to, to pinch and rip. And after a while, you ask them enough questions, they'll begin to say, this shirt doesn't fit very well. Or these, these pants don't fit very well. They begin to, to sense the, pitch, uh, the pinching and the ripping. So just learn to ask questions and allow their own conscience to see, hey, I actually don't have a good grounding for the why I do my life. In our culture, values are relative. Relationships are transactional. Identity is fragile. And supposed fulfillment is disappointing. So we can come in and show them that the gospel gives a meaning to life that suffering cannot take away but can only deepen. A satisfaction that isn't based on circumstances. A freedom that doesn't reduce community and relationships to thin transaction, an identity that isn't fragile or based on our performance or the exclusive, exclusivity of others, a way to both deal with guilt and forgiveness other than residual bitterness and shame, a basis to seek justice that doesn't turn us into oppressors ourselves, an explanation for the sense of transcendent beauty and love that we experience, a way to face our future, um, death itself with poise and peace. So we're actually helping non-Christians see that their longings are actually just echoes of their need for God. We just slowly but surely show them that. It's what Augustine said, oh Lord, our heart is restless until it rests in you. The last thing I just want to say in closing is that we need to trust the power of the gospel. Yes, we need to learn the era. We need to learn these isms, which helps us to articulate the gospel well. Um, and let me just say this about articulation. And I'm sorry, I know I'm going over here. Um, so forgive me. We did get started late. I'm going to blame that, okay? <laughs> it was Nathan's fault. No, anyways, but, um, but you know, in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I'm all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And then he says, to the Jew, I become to the Jew. To the Greek, I become the Greek. You know what he's saying? When, I, when I, I'm with Greek people, I adopt myself so I'm not unnecessarily offensive. 
You, you know what that is? That's contextualization. So that tells me, some people just like sound spiritual. All I do is preach the gospel. I don't care to be offensive. Well, you're not being biblical. Because 1 Corinthians 9 tells us that I need to be, um, I need to be, position myself in a way that I'm trying to be winsome. I'm trying to get them the gospel. If I come in offensively, they may never hear the gospel. And when now, from now on out, when they think about Christians, what do they think about? Jerks. So I want to be gracious and kind and want to approach this right. And I want to trust in the power of the gospel. Here's the truth. Empires have tried to crush Christianity and it's still here. Isms have come and they've gone and some of them are in the grave. Christianity is alive and well. And it's going to go into the future. Postmodernism is temporal and it will die. The gospel is eternal. It will live. So when we go into our culture, we don't go, woe is the church, it's going to die out unless we do something. We say, Jesus is alive, he's on the throne, it's going to go in, on for eternity, he's going to create a new heaven, a new earth, he's reconciling the world to himself, and with a very non-anxious presence, we say, I want to invite you to hear the story. I want to invite you into this transformation. And this is why Peter says, hey, when you do this, make sure that you do it with gentleness and respect. Do you see how holiness made way for us to articulate the apologia, but our holiness also dictates the way we give it. We give it with gentleness and respect. We don't shove it down someone's throat. It's the spirit of God that opens the eyes, right? My, um, my son uh, came in. We were in Seattle for couple years, my son came in to our house. I was sitting at the computer and he said, dad, dad, the world is going to blow up in a million years. It's going to blow up. It's going to fade away. I was like, calm down. What in the world? What happened? He's like, my neighbor friends and our neighbors were staunch atheists. And the kids were actually staunch atheists as well. They would often say Jesus is poop or something like that. Just little kids. And um, it was just kind of a weird context. But my son came in and I just said, okay, First, I really did say this. A million years is a long time away. Have you ever, like, your kids come in, they say something to you, you don't know what to say first? So you're like, what am I going to say? A million years is a long ways away. Wait, what, what, what am I saying? Um, Jesus is on the throne. For the first, so I was like, okay, we can calm down. It's not going to blow up right yet. And do you know who's actually, who created and sustains the world? And my son was like, oh, yeah. Colin, and he just goes back outside. It's the most funny, funny story. But we had this church gathering at our house and there was all these church people outside and the kids, or the kids were outside, the, the, the adults were inside. We had this big window so we could see the backyard. And our neighbor kids jumped up on the fence and said, what are you guys doing? They're like, oh, this is a church activity. We worship Jesus together. And now we're just kind of having fun in the backyard. And the neighbor kids just thought it was their time to give a plug. God's not real. And our church kids got so upset. Now, when I caught this, our kids were on the trampoline, jumping up and down, chanting. And they were chanting this, God is real. God is real. And I was just like, my pastor's heart was like, <gasps> when, I, when I figured out what was going on, I was like, I'm so proud of these kids. <laughs> but you know, when we mature as Christians, we realize that our quiet godliness does more than our screaming. We realize that when we invite people to the table, we just, we invite them to the table, we listen to their story, 
We're not rushed. We're not anxious. We ask thoughtful questions. We share the gospel. We lovingly address their apprehensions. We pray. We repeat this often. We trust the spirit of God to open their eyes and to draw them to himself. We hope that he will turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God. This is what we do. This is how we reach the next generation. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the word. Thank you for this time just to look at this text in a more deep, profound way. Lord, I pray that maybe one or two things that was said would just lodge in our hearts. Maybe most importantly, that we would embody apologetics, that we would live out the gospel, and Lord, that we would have a, just a non-anxious presence in our culture. We would look for opportunities to share Jesus and learn to build a case for Jesus that's both winsome, gracious, and that reflects the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast. Be sure to stop by our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Give us a follow. Also, go to our website, recoveringfundamentalist.org. That's recoveringfundamentalist.org. There you can find Recovering Fundamentalist swag. You can get your t-shirts and hats. You can join our ex-fundy community. See where we're going to be having some meetups. It's the recoveringfundamentalist.org. Be sure to join us next time for the Recovering Fundamentalist podcast.